For those at home, I went for two minutes and forgot to push record. We're talking about David and Jonathan. Um, but the sort of friendship that we have today is, is an online virtual friendship, social media friendship. Um, what does that consist of? I'm going to show you a picture of this pie that I ate today. Um, or it might be I'm going to share some really insightful thing that I have, something I want you guys to benefit from. That's how I try to use Facebook. I, I try to use Facebook like that because I know a lot of church members use it. I know a lot of friends back home use it. I know I have family members who use it, and I want to use it well. Um, but, you know, usually you're just passively, um, you're, you're putting yourself out there and someone else is looking at you and, and that person puts something up and you react to it. Or somebody shares a piece of news and then you argue with complete strangers that are friends with your friends in the comments about this thing that this person didn't actually do or write or have anything to do with. Um, none of that, none of that is healthy friendship. Yeah, right now. We have specialized friendships now with the advent of social media because, like, going through cancer treatment, I I have a couple of Facebook groups that are for women with my type of breast cancer, right? Mm -hmm. So that's all I know about them. Then I have Facebook groups for my reading life because I'm a crazy <laughs> avid reader. Mm -hmm. So so you have these people that know you really intimately, but only in one mm -hmm. way. So you're not getting anything well-rounded. It's just come down to these specialized friendships. Mm, yeah, Ronette was just saying that, that you get end up with these specialized friendships where people are um, always, they're your friend in one area. Um, this is my person that I go to to talk about this area of my life. This is the group where I go to talk about this area of my life. And we end up basically not being very close in any areas of our life because we just sort of spread ourselves out and nobody really knows us well. Um, Here's one of the things that's really frustrating about the story of David and Jonathan. And this is the modern tendency of commentators to homosexualize the relationship between David and Jonathan. Um, and and I, I understand in an era where men are not friends, certainly don't embrace one another, certainly don't weep in terms of their connection with one another... You open the Bible and you see these two guys who are hugging and they're kissing, um, and which is what friends did back then. I hope I don't want to bring that back. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, but they're doing these things that are just so foreign to us. They're so close to each other and they can't imagine it. They say they must have been gay, and it does a tremendous disservice to friendship. It does a tremendous disservice to friendship. It almost feels like people are saying friendship's not even possible. This sort of thing that these guys have, it couldn't be real. They couldn't actually just be friends. And the reality is there's, there's no indication in the text that this is, that this is the case. It is some, some step beyond pure conjecture that David and Jonathan have an inappropriate relationship. It really says more about us than it does about David and Jonathan. It really says a lot about, about us. Um, and I think that we sexualize friendships like this because we don't know a healthy friendship. We just, we just don't, don't know it. So we see these two men embrace. We two, see these two men together. And, you know, we are such lonely people that we go, well, there's only one reason you seek out a relationship with somebody. That's just the one-track mind of modern people. And, and we're also a hypersexualized society. So we're a deeply lonely society and a deeply sexual society. And so we go back into this and we go, oh, there's only one thing going on here. You people who don't think that, you're just naive. Um, that's, what, that's what the modern, modern folks do, at least. Considering who David is and, and what we know about him, how in the world would you come up with that? That's, that's bizarre. I mean, yeah. 
Really? I mean, bizarre is the right the bizarre is the right word for it. Look at who he, his life, and he's a homosexual. That's yeah. pretty amazing to come up with. <laughs> well, and some some try to make a, a middle way here. Yeah, John basically just said it's bizarre that someone would look at this guy who's a godly man, and that he would think they would think that. But see, the, there's this modern effort underway within. I'm going to say within the bounds of Christendom to to normalize homosexual desire this is how to how to talk about the struggles people have is a separate separate issue because i think the church can sensitively deal with people who have genuine struggles in their lives and i think the church needs to but but how we're going to talk about somebody like david or talk about somebody like jonathan um, the effort right now is basically to say the desire is fine, it's neutral, as long as you never act out on it. Um, there's this whole needle that's being threaded right now um, in some, some groups of what I'll call Christianity. And, and there is this effort to look at David and Jonathan and go, okay, they were not gay together, but they had a spiritual friendship that sort of like re- almost replaces a romantic relationship. And so they'll say that's sort of the model that you want to go for instead for people who have to be celibate um, because they've decided not to follow uh, their urges. Um, And so it's sort of this middle way where it's like we're going to read David and Jonathan still in this way that sort of makes a couple out of them. Um, Again, that's not actually a great idea because David's got loads of women in his life. He has no shortage of the ladies. Um, That's my main point. Yeah. So there's a lot of, yeah, there's, anyway. Um, Well, let's talk about how David mourns his friend. Like, let's, let's, let's set aside just the frustration, the modern frustration. Let's set aside some of that. And instead, let's just talk about how David mourns for his friend, right? David, or Jonathan dies in battle, falls next to his father. And you would think that on the one hand, David might be like, yeah, he fought with Saul. You know, Saul was trying to kill me. Saul was trying to displace me. I'm the anointed king of Israel. You know, he'd have every reason in the world to sort of be bitter at his friend. And instead, in 2 Samuel 1, 25, after Jonathan dies, David gives this amazing tribute to Jonathan. I'm just going to read it to you just because it's so moving. He says, Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. Now again, we don't have modern categories for this because we have collectively as a society decided that there is no higher expression of love than romantic love, right? Everyone's just said, there's nothing that's going to fulfill you like that. That's the, that's the apex. That's the epitome. And David says, it would be better to have Jonathan as my best friend than to be with a woman, is what David says. I mean, he really values friendship. This friendship is important to him, better than every other relationship in his life. And so, um, you know, you're going to assume something untoward here if you think romantic relationships are the highest expressions of love. I think what you've got here is actually proof that it's not. I think you have proof here that biblical friendship with another person who follows the Lord and you're close together, that that is valuable. That's important. Um, David is saying there are friendships that run deeper than romance. Um, It is real masculine love. I think we want to look at this as sort of a model of masculine love. Um, What is masculine love? I think it's the admiration of a fellow warrior for another fellow warrior. 
Um, you, you have mutual admiration. You say, this man, Jonathan, was a good man. That's what David does. He, he eulogizes his friend and said, I admired that guy. I admired that guy. And there is something about the closer you get to somebody and the more you admire them, it really speaks volumes of the person. Um, I'm less bothered by somebody who doesn't really know me and they don't like me. Uh, if somebody, you know, if somebody decides that Adam Parker is enemy number one and they've never talked to me or don't spend very much time with me, it matters very little. If I had somebody in my life who knew me really well and they were like, yeah, Adam is a jerk, I would just be brokenhearted, right? It's the people who are close to you who matter the most. And this is David and Jonathan. These guys share everything and, um, and they're friends and they really know each other. So there, there is David and Jonathan. I just really wanted to touch on, on these guys. Any comments, questions about David and Jonathan's friendship? I think also you can include that, that each other had their backs. Uh, they, uh, they could be dependent upon mm-hmm. uh, to, uh, to perform uh, what they said. Yeah. Yeah, he, uh, Rick was saying that they had each other's backs. They protected each other. Um, Jonathan is frequently telling David, I think you're in danger. I think my dad might try to kill you again. You know, <laughs> I think I think that's it's more understandable from the guys that have you know served. I think it's more understandable from that perspective. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, they're warriors. They're fighters. That's Benjamin, actually. Ben. Well, it, it, you you create a bond yeah. when your life is at stake or a friend of yours' life is at stake. Mm-hmm. You create a bond that is just unique. Yeah. And because <clears throat> of how you're trained, you're willing to give your life for that, your, your friend. Mm-hmm. And some of them that you don't even know. Mm-hmm. And those of us who have not been in war can't relate at all. Like, we just don't know what that's like. I really think the military is a very is a place where you encounter it. Yeah, this is why I like having people in the church who've been in the military. This was an early debate in the, in the early church. The, the question was, can you serve in the in the armed forces? Can you serve in the Roman army, for example, and be a Christian? And so they had that conversation. I think the church would be. Uh, I think we would be missing something if that wasn't the case. Daniel. Uh, Celeste has a question. Celeste. <laughs> Yeah. 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 She was just saying that Jonathan's pretty admirable for the fact that he's being a friend of David and he's not betraying his father. You know, he's he's doing all the, he's taking care of all the responsibilities he's got, which are very complex. <laughs> Probably nobody walks the, the walks the, the challenging tightrope in the Bible like Jonathan. Um, there's probably somebody I could think of that that does as well, but man, Jonathan has a really not an easy time doing what he has to and being loyal to everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, so one other thing I want to talk about is David's reign. Actually, no, I'm going to skip ahead. The one thing I want you to remember is that when David eventually takes the throne, when David eventually becomes king, one of the things he doesn't do is wipe out Saul's family. This is one of those things that makes David stand out from the other nations. Again, if Saul had taken the throne, 
I guarantee you, Saul would have done what all the other nations do. What what does another king do in the other nations when they rise to power? You eliminate any possible threats to the throne. You make sure that you kill all the family of your rival because they're going to come back and you're going to regret it later. And in David's case, the one family member who's left, does anybody remember his name? Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth, you know, with his two broken little feet. And um, David, there's nobody who's weaker. There's nobody who's more vulnerable that David could easily snuff out than um, Mephibosheth. And he brings Mephibosheth in and sets him at his table and he basically makes him a part of his court. I mean, he lives basically with David. Uh, he gets this exalted place of, uh, to live. And, he, and so in other words, I want to highlight the fact that David doesn't do what the surrounding nations do. I'm just going to keep coming back to that. That he, he trusts God enough to let that threat linger out there and not eliminate him. Um, he, he's willing to let the fragility of Israel sort of be what it is rather than strengthen Israel in this worldly way by killing off Mephibosheth. Because if somebody gets unhappy with him later, they could have turned Mephibosheth into sort of like, a, like some kind of figure that they would just lift up and say, we should bring back Saul. And eventually everybody thinks the past was better. And at some point, you, you're, you can be sure somebody in Israel yearned for the days of Saul. And so Mephibosheth would have always been that. And David says, I'm not going to kill him. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let him live, even though I could, could wipe him out. And nobody would, nobody would even second guess him because that's what all the kings do. Um, so I want to talk about, before we go, I want to talk about David, God's covenant with David. This happens in 2 Samuel 7. And the reason we've got to. You've, you've got to. And as, as far as biblical history goes, you know, when you're talking about the big highlights in redemptive history, I would say the first one is the promise that God makes in Genesis 3. He tells Adam and Eve, he tells the serpent that God's going to send a seed. It's going to crush the serpent's head. Right? Your first gospel promise in Genesis 3. And then the next big step in redemptive history is Abraham getting called out of Ur of the Chaldeans. And him receiving the covenant with God. And God saying, circumcise your son. Uh, be, you come into covenant with me. And then I would say after he rescues Israel and after he brings them into, into Israel and into Canaan, this is the next big event. Because the covenant that he makes with David is amazing what he says. So what does he promise to give David in this covenant? He says, I'm going to give you a great name. He says, he says you're going to be secure. Israel's going to be secure. Uh, he says, I'm going to give you rest. Um, he says, I'm going to give you. Where are you? Second Samuel 7. Yeah, 2 Samuel 7, 8 to 11 is where God makes this uh, vow. Here's why this is a big deal. He says, I will, God says to him, I will raise up a descendant after you who will come forth for you, from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. In the short, in the short term, who is the one that's going to come from David? Solomon. Solomon. Little Solomon, right? Little baby, right? He's going to come from David. His throne's going to continue. But here's the question. Does Solomon fulfill the promise of there being an eternal throne? No, right? This is, so this is why when you, look at, when you look at the vows that get made, the promises and the covenants that get made, you just need to understand there's a, double, there's a double fulfillment to these. On the one hand, yes, you get Solomon. Yes, Solomon experienced security. 
more security than any king before or after in Israel, more rest than any king before or after Israel. David's the one that lived at war. Solomon got rest. He's the one that's got time and luxury and all of the goods to be able to build the temple for God. Um, and, but but the, 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 here's the eternal throne is the problem because what happens with Solomon eventually is he's got two sons and his sons do not get along. And in fact, they get along so badly, there ends up being a civil war. Israel ends up being split into two, into Judah and Israel. And we're going to talk about that next week when we talk about First and Second Kings. But all that to say, if this is God's idea of an eternal throne, it's really disappointing. Now, I can say that because we know this. We know that he has something else in mind when he says eternal throne. What we're talking about is the reign of Christ because Jesus is a descendant of David. He fulfills all of these things and he makes all of this actually happen, right? He makes David's name great. He makes us more secure than any earthly king actually could. He gives us rest from every enemy that we have. And he's got an eternal throne that never gets torn down and that can never be, uh, you know, uh, never be taken. So when you think about all of this, you know, you did, there's that, um, and I just want you to appreciate there's a partial answer to this and then there's a complete answer to this. Solomon's a partial answer. But if you try reading it, if Solomon is the full answer to it, you're going to be like, well, God didn't keep that promise then. And so there has to be more to it. And that's one of the things you see with the New Testament. Um, I'm not going to talk about David's fall into sin. There's just not enough time. Um, I think just because there's nobody holding a, a flame under us and, uh, or a gun to my head telling me we have to move quickly, we'll just stick with this and we'll just keep, we'll stay in for, uh, Second Samuel next week and talk about David's fall into sin. Very quickly. Yeah. Isn't there one, an unspoken aspect to this pact that God made with David and that was intimacy? There was an intimacy that God had with David as is shown throughout David's life and when spoken of David. Well, I think that's certainly something you see in David's life. He knows the Lord. You can tell from reading the Psalms. This is a guy who walks with God, who knows God, who treasures the Lord. Um, but I would not say that's part of the covenant that you read here because the covenant that you read here is about his descendants and what's going to come after. So, And when he says, I'll be your God, I mean, there's actually a lot bound up in there. Certainly intimacy for sure. Um, but it's 12.15. It's time for us to get out, time for us to relieve the teachers. So stay after a visit for a little bit, but in about 10 minutes probably, we're going to start the Inquirer's class here. So, um, you know, you can talk as much as you want. Just do it outside maybe. Um, well, let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the friendship of David and Jonathan in Scripture. We thank you for showing us that two men can be great great friends, lifelong friends, deep friends, Lord, that, that real friendship is possible. I pray, oh God, that in our own lives, that if we are lonely, if we feel, if, we, if, you have, if there are people here who feel like they don't have close friends, I pray that you would help them to seek out those relationships, to take chances, to put themselves out there. Um, it's hard as a grown-up to make friends, but Lord, we need them. Uh, it's important to us. It's something that you built us for. Uh, you haven't only built us for romantic love, Lord. You have built us to have friends. So I pray that you would bring friends mm -hmm. into your, God's people's lives. Yes. I pray that you would fortify us with those friendships, yes. that you would, would help us to be stronger believers because we have had friends. Yes. 
Would you do that for us, O oh God? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.